What's up, ladies and gentlemen? We are back for episode 27 of Unapologetic Truths. Harsh, how are you? I'm doing well, Arman. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I just got done with a move recently. Yeah, I just finished moving, man. This is a hassle, but it's done now. And I like the new house way more than the old house. What do you like about the new house so much? This house is twice as big. It has a private gym. It has essentially more techy features since it's a new house. So it has things like when you open the cupboard, it lights up. The geezer, like you just turn it on and the water is hot immediately. You don't have to wait five, six minutes for it to like get hot. And all the techy features. So it's, it's a pretty cool house. I have a separate office here in the house itself. The library is twice as big. And library. So, yeah, the library is twice as big as my previous house. Man, are you some sort of celebrity over there in India? No, man. See, India is the worst place to be a celebrity at. Like, it is the worst place to be a celebrity at. So, no, I'm not. And I have no intention of being a celebrity here. But wait a minute, wait a minute. You have a personal gym in your house. You have a library. I mean... That's not normal, is it? It's not. Most people don't read or lift. No, I mean, like you actually having this in your living facility. It seems to me, as I'm picturing it, that this is a mansion. It's not. It's not. It's a, it's a, it's a big apartment, you could say. It's like a very big apartment. Gotcha. The thing is that like, if, you, if you have, say, for example, eight rooms, and you only have, say, use for three or four rooms, What are you going to do with the four extra rooms? You use it in as amenities, you could say. So one room becomes like a gym. One room is a library, etc. One is an office for me. So it's it's just a big house, you could say. It's nothing special. Instead of just keeping the rooms closed, I'm using them for useful purposes. Mm-hmm. There's a service in Tampa. It's called a College Hunks Move Furniture. And uh, basically, it's a themed uh, moving service where these are college students that are swole that will come through and will move your furniture. But their selling point is that they're super cheap because these are college students. You don't have to pay them too much money. And their branding is pretty unique too, uh, college hunks. So nowadays, if someone from Tampa is trying to move, they'll just say, just call the college hunks. The only caveat with this is, I believe it's good branding for a girl. Like if a girl says, yeah, let's call the college hunks, that's fine. If you're a guy and you're saying, hey, I called the college hunks, now you just look <laughs> a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> See, if there was a service which was like calling college girls to move your furniture, would it also be cheap or would it be like extra expensive? College girls to move your furniture? I mean, some of the stuff are really heavy. <laughs> But let's say there's enough girls coming. Would it be cheaper or more expensive? Probably more expensive. Probably more expensive, right? Which kind of tells you a bit about the value of the sexes, you could say. Mm-hmm. The last time I moved Harsh, uh, there was uh, two guys that came. And they were scrawny little dudes. And I'm looking at them. And I'm thinking, you're going to be moving this big bed, uh, this big... TV stand that I have, these big couches. And even though they're small, harsh, 
they were strong. Uh, they were lifting it, uh, just these two, of everything from one apartment to the other house. Damn, it's, how small were they exactly? Were they like small, like short, or were they like weak? They looked weak. I would say they were five, eight. I don't know how much pounds. I would say 140 pounds or so. Damn, Maybe that, guys. that is small. But one of the guys, uh, he pulls me to the side and he's like, uh, hey, uh, sir, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. He says, is it cool if me and my uh, friend, we drink before we move all this? And I started scratching my head because no one's ever asked me that before. And I started thinking, I mean, can you still do your job if you're tipsy or drunk? And he's like, sir, I could do the job way better if I got some juice in me, if you know what I'm saying. And he did a good job. He, he didn't break anything. Interesting. Why do you think that is? Because it's such a repetitive job. I mean, they're over here doing the same thing. It's so mind-numbingly boring. And I believe that being tipsy allows them to feel loose and it allows them to make waves with the mundane. So, ah, and they're very crafty. Uh, they came with a drill. Uh, they took apart pieces and they would rebuild it back when they take it to the new spot. But I thought it was strange that he was getting tipsy and drunk before doing this work. I wonder how many other movers do the same. No, no, I get it, man. So I'll give you one more example of this. A lot of people in the villages in India, they have a lot of tobacco, like the chewing tobacco thing. And I was talking to one of these workers and like, why are you chewing so much tobacco? You know that it's bad for your health, right? And his response was actually very enlightening to me when I got it. And it was something like this, okay? Imagine, Arman, that you are doing some kind of menial task that doesn't require any intelligence. Let's say that you are working in a factory and you're essentially, your entire task is to look at an assembly line and just do some minor things. Like if something is, you know, if, if say there are snack bars coming on the assembly line, if a mm. snack bar is broken, you got to remove it by hand. That's your entire job, eight hours a day. How long can you survive looking at a damn assembly line? Eight hours a day, or maybe even like 12 hours a day, because in India, factories like work way more. So mm. it's like 12 hours a day of looking at an assembly line and removing these stupid, broken crap, you know, whatever like they're asking you to do. It's a menial job. It doesn't require any thought. This is not something that humans were born to do. Like this is not stimulating enough. So that's why a lot of poor people use, you know, drugs like these, you could say, like chewing tobacco, smoking, drinking, etc. It's a way to alleviate the boredom of what they actually do. And of course, they get hooked to it as well. But largely, the issue is that it's impossible, you could say, or very, very difficult to do these tasks, like working in a factory or driving forever, whatever without being somewhat stimulated by stimulants. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about it. Uh, uh, eight hour shift, just doing the same thing in repetition. But that it's... is most people. Like yeah. I can, I, I used to do that. I used to do that. Like when I was 18 years old, when I was starting oh, to be an accountant, 
-hmm. I was doing data entry and I would be feeding in data for like 12 hours a day for months or like for, for an entire month, I'm like just feeding data in from like a bank statement physically printed into a computer. So that is like a draining task and it kills you from the inside. Like there is an emotional death, you know, at some point you're like, I would rather die than do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I, I could instantly relate when the guy said this and I was like, yeah, I get you, man. Like, enjoy your chewing tobacco. <laughs> Did you have something when you were doing the data entry? No, Did you man, have a I didn't, cork? I didn't. No, no cork? I didn't. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do any nonsense like that. But do you bite your nails or something? Nothing? I used to do that as a kid. And, you know, if you look at my nails now, they're like inside, like in the sense that I bit them so much as a kid that they're essentially damaged permanently. That doesn't sound pleasant. No, in the sense that they're too deep. Like I cut them too deep. And now if you look at my nails, it's like they've been cut too deep. Like show me your nails on, on the microphone. Oh, sorry, in the camera. So do you see where they end? Mine end like half a centimeter or like a few millimeters before yours end, the pink part of the nail. Ugh. I'm picturing something. I don't know if it's accurate. I mean, are you in pain? No, it, it isn't bad at all. Let me actually show you a picture. So a lot of people who like bit nails when they were kids have the same issue. I go to google.com and find a picture of like short nail biting. Okay, one sec. As you're pulling that up, I wonder if there's any jobs where there isn't some sort of, I wouldn't say trauma involved, but some sort of setback that can be soul crushing at times. Where with the job that you mentioned, Harsh, the accounting, uh, it's mm -hmm. repetitive with moving, it's repetitive and it's physically demanding. So someone logical may be like, well, what about artistic jobs? Artistic jobs, uh, it's not monotonous and it should be fun. But when you break down a lot of artists, they'll tell you that their jobs, there's some joy in it, but a lot of it is built through pain. Filmmakers will say the same thing. Drawers, authors, they'll say, you need to be somewhat demented to a certain degree to be a prolific artist. And that doesn't sound pleasant either. So I wonder which jobs out there don't have setbacks or are jobs built with setbacks in it okay i got the link wait i sent you a link check the second one out that is more what do you call it accurate the first one is a bit extreme okay that's not too bad yeah but the nails are like slightly behind you could say mm. can you repeat what you were asking i'm sorry i was looking at the images of the nails no i mean the main thing that i was saying was you know how we were talking about how repetitive jobs can be soul crushing, whether it's mm -hmm. data entry or whether it's moving something. The next logical thing for someone to be like is, well, what about artistic jobs? Artistic jobs aren't repetitive. It's built on creativity. That possibly can't be soul crushing. But if you hear a lot of the interviews from some of the top artists out there, whether they're filmmakers, whether they're musicians, whether they're writers, most of them will echo the same sentiment. They'll say something like, you need to be somewhat fucked up 
just to a certain degree to be a prolific artist. Otherwise, you're not going to have much unique insights to say. So when you hear that, it's like, oh, wait, you, you have to be somewhat fucked up to be a prolific artist. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound pleasant either. So the question I had for you was, is that just something to expect with jobs, that all jobs have this soul-crushing aspect to it? Or is there a way to navigate this? So I'll first address some axioms you gave earlier, right? So you started with the fact, you started with the fact that artists like an artist job is not repetitive which i would disagree with that i would say most artists are doing extremely repetitive stuff see the exception are people like us or writers like you know when we write an article we don't write the same article twice mm -hmm. but let's say a musician he doesn't just play a song once right he practices the song for months and months and months and it's really boring and annoying and i know that because i learned how to play guitar and I hated it so much because, as a side note, this is how I got into guitar, and I'll tell you why I hated it. So I see my friend in school playing guitar, and he's really cool to me. Like I'm like, this guy is really cool. He's playing guitar. Everyone admires him. I should learn guitar. So I get a guitar, and I join a class, and I'm learning like basic stuff, like chords and like simple songs, like Happy Birthday. And I'm playing it, and okay, now I can play Happy Birthday. But to get good at it, I have to play the stupid song for like weeks. Like, imagine playing one song 10 times, 20 times a day for weeks. That's really repetitive. And I felt like an idiot doing this, and I quit. I'm like, I'm not learning how to play guitar. This is really stupid. And only an idiot would do this because this is essentially you are trying to be a computer. Like this is something you would feed into a computer, how to play happy birthday once, and then the computer would keep playing it. But here you are like learning the stupid <laughs> instrument and trying to act as if you are a computer. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't a big fan of guitar and it taught me something very interesting is that most artists are doing repetitive stuff. They're not being unique every single time. Most of their lives are just repeating something they created once but they have to repeat it so many times that you can essentially say that they are factory workers, but they, they come up with the design of the product as well. <laughs> and writers are an exception to this because we only produce once. We don't be like, you know, I'm going to write the same article six times. Like That doesn't happen. Right. Painters, I don't know. I wasn't much into painting, so I can't tell. So I can't comment on painting, but if I had to guess, you know, you're painting similar stuff. So it's probably really repetitive, you know, like how, how many times he must have painted say, the sky or the grass or whatever. So there has to be a lot of repetition there, but I don't know much about painting. So to answer your question, finally, can there be job? Like, is this a feature of jobs to be soul crushing? I don't think so. I do know people who really enjoy their jobs, who find them really stimulating. And I don't think they have to be soul crushing. I will say that a big element of your job happiness actually comes from your employer or should I say your direct manager or your boss. Like, are they actually interested in whether you learn more or not? Are they into micromanagement? And a lot of people quit their jobs, not because they hate the job, but because they don't like the manager or because of ego issues and things like that. You ever had a mean boss? Nah, man, I was a mean employee. You were a mean employee? Yeah, I was like completely useless as an employee. And I 
kind of didn't work. Like I never worked like a real job, you could say. I was just there as like an intern for like a long time. But I was like a shitty intern. I was I didn't do what was asked of me. I would leave on time instead of leaving six hours late like everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't care enough. I was 18 and I was having fun. Okay. So you can't necessarily empathize with, uh, you know how a lot of workers, they'll say, my boss is out for me. You, you don't uh, necessarily understand where they're coming from, do you? I'm asking that for a reason because I want to talk to you about one of the first times I had a mean boss. I have never been in the situation where I would rather like not be in it. Like if I if I if that that has never happened to me where I'm being bossed around by someone and I'm forced in the situation and I can't go out of it. That hasn't happened yet. So there was a time for me, Harsh, where most of my managers up until this point were awesome. And I would have other coworkers that would whine about how their managers were not good. And there was just to give you an example. There was one guy who sat right by his manager in his queue, and the manager would literally get up and turn around to look at his worker to see if he was still working. And that's how much of a micromanager he was. And in the beginning stages, I couldn't empathize with that. I'm thinking, dude, most of the managers that I work with are great. You guys just seem to be whining. Later on in the game, one day I was assigned a floor manager. So most of my team was in Chicago. I worked in Tampa and my company didn't like that. My company was like, okay, well, even if his team is in Chicago, he needs a manager in Tampa. So I was assigned this stooge. I mean, this dude was mean. Uh, He just came from Brazil. Uh, He used to be in the Marines and he would just blatantly curse and talk down to his employees. And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm like, man, I'm going to listen to you. I, you actually have zero authority over me because I don't do any projects for you. The only reason you're my manager right now is because we're in the same geographic location. And there were a few times where me and him were beefing in meetings. And I was lucky to be in a position where he technically couldn't fire me. But every now and then, I would put myself in the mindset. What if he could fire me? I mean, I had to be this dude's servant if because he was so much of a tyrant. And I started <laughs> to see, I started to see some loopholes in these corporate workspaces. How is it that this guy was able to rise up this high in the company with that sort of attitude? That sort of attitude could work in the 90s, but nowadays you talk like that to people, I mean, they can actually clap back at you. So it was unique to see him and the fear that he sparked in a lot of the people that he could fire, uh, the people that actually reported to him. And it was my first ever brush with what a mean manager is like, because you're basically surrounded by this dude for six to eight hours of the day. And if those eight hours are brutal, I feel for those people that have these awful managers. They kind of bought it on themselves in a way by choosing to work a job. Like it's like, if you're gonna work a job, you might as well find a good place to work at. And if you can't, then this is what like the free market you've landed up at, you know, like it's, the world doesn't owe you like a comfortable workspace. <laughs> he was a unique thing about this it. Like, guy. It sucks, I know, I know it sucks. 
this Brazilian manager, his name is Mike, by the way, he was a jerk in the work sphere, but anytime he was outside of work, he was one of the coolest guys out there. Like he was one of the guys. You could talk to him about life. He'll talk about going to strip clubs and all of that stuff. Um, he talked about his life partying. Cool guy outside of work, a jerk inside of work. So um, I don't know what lesson this was. It was just unique interacting with this individual. Do you think that his military background might have played a role in this? Yes, I would say that played a big role. I mean, when you look at the guy, you could tell he was involved in something military related. Always tip top in terms of how he dressed, a comb over, glasses, spoke direct, no jokes at work. Outside of work, I mean, he loosened up a little bit, but I mean, he was still, uh, you could still get that military background from him. The tyrant. He was a tyrant. I mean, there was this one time we got, uh, so we were at this meeting, right? And mm -hmm. it was awkward where we've been working on this project for three weeks. And this is when he asked if I could contribute to one of his projects. Uh, thus far, he was just my floor manager. So he would approve my timesheets. That was it. So this is my first time working with his team to see how he interacts with them. So I had to go to a few of these meetings every Friday, Harsh. Mm -hmm. I go to these meetings and he's like, does anyone have any questions for me? And no one raises their hand. So I'm thinking he's going to end the meeting. Instead, he starts getting angry. He says, so we've been working on this project for three weeks and no one has any questions for me. But this is ridiculous. You guys just aren't uh, serious about this project. In my mind, I'm thinking maybe they really don't have any questions. Maybe they're <laughs> doing their jobs pretty well and uh, they don't have any questions. So he's not letting us leave until we ask him some questions. So I asked this complete BS question and he's like, the project is almost done and you're just asking me that question right now. And I'm like, dude, it's a problem if we don't ask you a question. It's a problem <laughs> if we ask you a question. What the hell do you want, man? This is like this guy's like a woman, you know, like I I have something in my head that I want you to ask me, but I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> dude, and at that point, I was volunteering to help this guy out. And he's over here trying to embarrass me. And thankfully, uh, this guy was not someone that I had to deal with a lot. But it, it did allow me to empathize when someone is saying that they hate their job. Even if times I don't agree with it, I can at least put myself in that shoes where they probably are surrounded by a mic all day. And it doesn't even have to be a manager. It could even just be a coworker. This negative Nancy that's by you spreading gossip about you and you're always in that vicinity i mean it could get annoying i totally get you man in fact i was speaking earlier with a friend of mine who has a story where she was working with someone as like a partner you know like this other person was her partner and she had to leave because essentially this guy was intolerable like he was super bossy so she had to quit 
and she was telling me that like it was a great paying gig it paid well but she was just so unhappy being there that she left i i will say that a lot of people who quit jobs essentially do it not because of pay but because of like being managed the wrong way or ego issues or just being unhappy with the guy who was actually their boss right did you ever hear about Harvey Weinstein i've seen some episodes about him no that's eric weinstein sorry um no i don't know much about harvey weinstein so he was the guy who pretty much sparked off the entire me too movement he was the founder of Pharomax the production company and mm-hmm. he produced a lot of hits in the 90s so he built up so much clout where if you wanted to be a somebody in terms of actor or actress you needed to be on Harvey's good side this dude was also a weirdo where he would use his power to uh, coax women uh, and try to hook up with them and he did this for years and a lot of women were blackballed a lot of them were traumatized and over time as uh, as more time went on by that's when women started to come out and that's what eventually led to the me too movement so that's another sort of thing that holds people back where you you gain so much power that you start to abuse it in the incorrect way I can see how that's the wrong thing to do for this guy like to actually be like okay if you want to be an actress you got to suck my dick or something like that but I will say that it is also the women's fault for doing it I mean enough women were doing it that it was working What do you think about the what do you think about the me too movement it's like a kangaroo court you know what a kangaroo court is Mm-mm. so i'll tell you what i don't know what it is the me too movement is essentially a way for everyone to realize why regular courts have things like standards of admission innocent until proven guilty the right to actually bring your own evidence in the fact that you won't be pronounced guilty before you're heard and things like that you know things that the law evolved over a long period of time that type of stuff exists for a reason and the me too movement tells you why like it it reminds you of the reason like what happens when a woman accuses you of me too firstly everyone presumes that you are guilty so it's not innocent until proven guilty it's guilty until proven innocent mm. secondly a judgment is passed before you are even allowed to give your side so if you have your job or you are say whatever career you're at you're prob- probably going to get fired and your reputation is going to suffer so you are punished before you can actually give your own evidence out and thirdly no one's ever going to hear your side like no one cares so you're essentially screwed like you you're like a, it's it's like a kangaroo court so kangaroo court pretty much means a witch hunt you could say that but it, it kind of it's like a mockery of justice you could say like there are it's like a court with no principles 
I had a tweet about this. Let me actually find it. One sec. Yeah, because I, I just saw this documentary recently of Harvey Weinstein because I've heard about what he did, but I didn't know the way that he went about it. And he had a lot of these women signing non-disclosure agreements. And a lot of people in the industry knew what he was doing. But it's it's where if you double cross him, you may not have a career again. So he accumulated a lot of power and he was using it in a way where it was a very, very sneaky. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I just saw this documentary recently. See, I would say the right way of handling it was something like if, let's say, the woman is asked to suck this guy's dick or not get the job, that's when she should go to the police or whatever, you know, and not, say, 30 years later. Because that's like, you know, how do we know? Like, let's say that it happened, okay? But we can't punish someone unless there is proof and there is no evidence 30 years later. So it's up to you. Like, if someone committed a crime against you, you have to report it as quickly as possible, not like 30 years later, right? Otherwise, it's like, if some if people start taking you on your word, then you can like accuse anyone and it's just, just your word against theirs. And there is like no way to actually find out what happened because it was so long ago. And I found the tweet. It's by this guy called Eric Weinstein. And the tweet is like this, okay? We're all slowly figuring out why a trial and error in the kangaroo courts of social media why non-kangaroo courts have, one, the presumption of innocence, the right to face one's accuser, the right to be represented, evidentiary admissibility standards, the right to remain silent, and statutes of limitations, etc. So when someone gets a Me Too court, it's like a kangaroo, like, uh, when someone gets a Me Too acquisition, it's like a kangaroo court, okay? Firstly, there is a presumption of guilt, you have no right to face your accuser because it's happening over social media and it's like you're getting mobbed. So all the people accusing you of these crimes, you're not actually looking at them. You can't even face them because they aren't there. You have no right to be represented because it's social media and not a court. So in the kangaroo court, you have no representation. People have already decided that you're guilty and then mm. you will be punished. Then there are no standards of evidence. Like it's the only evidence that's there is that she says it happened like this. And that's what people are going to believe. So there are no standards. Like there is no standard. Like this is good evidence. This is bad evidence. This can be relied upon and this can't be relied upon. Then the right to remain silent. So if you're silent, then you are again presumed guilty. So there is no right to remain silent. And there is no statute of limitations because you know anyone can say 50 years ago this happened. 30 years ago, Armand took one Bitcoin from me and now he has to pay it back. So it's like there, there needs to be a statute of limitations. There's a reason why things like this exist. There's a reason why someone came up. Like, there's a reason why all these laws evolved, right? The statute of limitation, the right to remain silent to have standards of evidence, to, you know, the right to be represented, the right to face the guy accusing you, the presumption of innocence, etc. Historically, these things have evolved because of human nature and because humans are not honest. And it's the Me Too thing is just like the reversal of all of these things. It's like going back to an old era where we haven't discovered people. 
and now we're just supposed to trust women because they're women like no that that's not how it works yeah. what are your thoughts on the whole amber Heard thing i would say it's it's very similar to what happened to this johnny depp guy before you know he actually won this court thing mm-hmm. it's one of these things harsh that are so difficult to form an opinion on because it's I can see both sides. See, I've now seen... you're just chickening out. Now you're like, I am going to be diplomatic here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, because I've been seeing a lot of these uh, stories because I, I was curious, uh, how the hell did this Me Too movement even start in the first place? And that's when uh, there were these guys that I grew up watching, Charlie Rose, uh, Bill O'Reilly, uh, Matt Lauer, that just disappeared. And they have some of these shocking allegations regarding them. And they even admit to a lot of this stuff. Uh, so I see that side. But then there's this other side where Me Too transformed into something uh, monstrous, where it's it could be 30, 40 years ago, and now you're just coming up out of the woodworks saying, oh, this happened to me that long ago. So at one point, I'm seeing these guys admitting it. The other point, now this movement has gone all over the place. What was your initial question? Like, about the Amber Heard thing? Yeah, isn't it very similar where this Amber Heard chick accuses this Johnny Depp guy of like domestic violence or whatever, and this guy is fired and he loses his contracts and he was essentially screwed and he had to prove his innocence. He had to prove his innocence. To the public. It hurt his career bad, man, because Johnny Depp, I mean, he was an iconic movie character and then he just disappears. I mean, he has to protect himself from lies. I believe one of the best ways, and it's not going to be the correct answer to some, is that you gotta make these, you gotta make these known immediately. It just because how it's working out, because there are a lot of individuals that uh, that stretch the truth. There are a lot of individuals that tell the truth, but it's it's you gotta do your best to do it in a way where you come to the authorities immediately. And I get you have to process it, um, but this isn't something that I have as much knowledge in where I, I see multiple sides. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's one of those a great responses. Uh, I, I, just, like, chickening out, <laughs> like, I can like logically give you some thoughts that I have. OK, for example, I will say that there needs to be a time limit, like six months that you can re- report a complaint like this. Six months is a long time. OK. If some guy asks you to suck his dick and, or like be fired, six months is a long time. Like you can you can go to the police in six months. So say six or three months, then there needs to be like a standard of evidence. Okay, you gotta like have at least some evidence. Like you can't like we're not gonna send someone to jail because you said something. Like you gotta bring at some proof, like a sound recording or something that can be verified. Out of curiosity, so, harsh. Um, how does some okay you, you said sound recording but let's say this is the first time that's something like this is happening let's say the guy is being very aggressive with the girl how would a girl in this situation bring evidence just asking i don't know like i don't have the solution here because it's like this okay if someone like comes to you and then starts like making starts say, saying racist shit in on your face there's nothing you can do because unless you can record it, like this guy's gonna get away with it. So words won't hurt, like you know, like if someone is actually grabbing this woman, hurting her, hitting her, 
then she will have evidence in the you know in the form of marks or whatever which can like you know be used as evidence but if you are asking me if if say some guy is like okay suck my dick or you won't have a job i don't know what preliminary evidence you can bring if you were not prepared for like an event of this type so i don't know i don't have a good answer that i will admit like i just because then it eventually becomes his word versus my word yeah but we can't punish someone without having proof so yeah that that i would say is like a fundamental principle of justice where it's you you can't punish someone who's not guilty and the only way to establish someone being guilty is having proof so i don't have a good answer to what to do if you have no ability to, ability to you know get proof but see it's a great mm-hmm. issue no it's not a great issue it just it's a, it's a problem it's not an issue mm. the issue is simple like we we can't send someone to jail unless there is evidence to come to the crime i agree with you there and no and that's what i'm yeah i agree with you there Where you... but thirdly i will say that sorry i'm just going to finish my five point list or four point list okay, and then i'm going to let you talk yeah. yeah i've thought about it so the third thing is that if there is like proof that you lied okay if someone can give evidence that this is a false accusation false accusation then there needs to be the same punishment for the false accuser so if someone falsely accuses someone else of say sexual harassment and if it had been true let's say this person would have gone to jail for 2 years so if it is provably false then the false accuser needs to go to jail for the same amount of time otherwise it just encourages people to file false complaints so i i would say like the same like the reciprocal jail term needs to be there the reciprocal punishment like had this actually happened how long will this guy be sentenced to and the 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 accusing party needs to be sentenced for the same amount of time for making a false accusation and finally i will say that um until there's a judgment passed until the court decides that someone is actually guilty the journalists and established media companies should not be allowed to publish this person's name because that just hurts this guy's reputation for no reason like even if he's completely innocent and these journalists have completely maligned him when he's innocent the journalists won't even talk about him so all the accusations will be out there in the public but the fact that he's innocent would hardly be written about so i would say that that needs to be there like either they're not allowed to print his name and talk about him or if they are talking about him then they have to print equivalent amount of words at the same places with the same amount of prominence about his innocence mm-hmm. so i would say those are my four or five demands i lost count i think there were four <laughs> you've been thinking about this which is a good thing because this is one of those situations where especially nowadays harsh where there's so much information where back in the days you didn't have as much information it was something that was happening behind the scenes now most individuals know how to behave uh, it gets tricky and let me give you a situation 2010 or 2011 i was driving with this one super dark skinned guy right he had dreads he had a hoodie on tattoos all over the place and we were driving uh, late at night and we we're just chilling and we were talking 
And then suddenly a cop pulls us over. Mm-hmm. And once he pulls us over, I'm the guy that's driving. So I pull up my driver's license and registration. I know the drill already. And I give it to him. And the cop looks at me and is like, no, I don't want your information. I want his information. And he has these <laughs> menacing eyes. And he's looking at the my black passenger and is asking him for his driver's license. So he basically pulled me over to get this guy's information. And we were shocked because, I mean, we didn't know at the time because we were 18 or 19, but that's not something that's legal. I mean, he should have asked a question like, am I being detained or what grounds of suspicion am I in? We just didn't know any better. So he gave his driver's license and this guy was, I pulled him out of the car, patting him and everything. And we were so clueless because we were teenagers. And uh, we talked a couple of years later. And this black friend of mine was saying, what that police officer did to me was not right. It just, I didn't know. I, I want to find this guy and I want to get at him. Because it, it somewhat traumatized him. I mean, he's over here being patted and he was put, I don't know if he was put on the handcuffs or not. But this cop was getting aggressive with them, and we just didn't know any better. And as more time came on uh, by on YouTube, there's all these videos nowadays uh, that shows police officers uh, trying to come at a citizen unjustly. And the citizen will say stuff like, am I being detained? And the cop will be like, uh, uh. So, <laughs> so that's the question nowadays. I know. Power to, here, but... <laughs> yeah, so. Um, this uh, black friend of mine nowadays knows to ask that question. Uh, brown people, I mean, in the U.S., anytime police officers are involved, uh, there's no funny business. So we're, we'll quickly give the, the card. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is one of those situations nowadays, uh, just to come back to the Me Too movement. I mean, there's more information out there where um, waiting 20 to 30 years, uh, I mean, you may need some time to process but to increase your chances of uh, getting this guy out of the street is best to make that information known to the authorities as soon as possible. Yeah, 20, 30 years is just crazy long. Like it's impossible to get evidence, okay? Even if there was a security camera right over you when the crime happened, 20 years later, there's gonna be no footage available. So 20 years is way too long. I will say one thing though, it's really wrong what's happening in the US right now where like if you're black, you're like, you know, the chances of you getting searched are way higher. But I also get the police people's perspective where if in your career you find that the majority of crimes are committed by people wearing orange shirts and then you're looking at guys and one guy is wearing an orange shirt, are you going to have a look at that or not? You probably will. And I will say that there is maybe some element of racism, but probably also an element of, say, pattern recognition on the police's part. Okay, so they're like, okay, so these guys might are more likely to actually have some drugs or whatever. So we're gonna search them more. So it's like a, like how who do you actually put the blame on, the police or these guys? So I don't know, but I've seen statistics from the U.S. and I don't know if these statistics are completely true or not, but I think like the vast majority of people in the jails in the U.S. are black people. 
and the official statistic is like they commit disproportionately high amounts of crime and i will say it has to come from the fact that like a lot of them are fatherless right like earlier we were discussing 70% of black kids born after 2014 are born to unwed mothers so a lot of them don't have enough guidance and the official stat says that they commit like a ton more crimes than their you know actual percentage in the population so there is a chance that the police people like in their careers notice that okay so the vast majority of crimes are committed by this one group so maybe we should search this group more and this is kind of where we are where the black people might feel like okay these guys are racist as hell they're only searching us and the police might feel like okay so these guys are criminal criminal as hell and we should search them only so how do we know who's right but i would say it still doesn't justify like you know needs better training to search someone without suspicion like just because someone matches like just because someone is from a high risk community doesn't mean you just get to like, stop them on the street and like pat their ass or whatever like that doesn't mm-hmm. that's not how it's supposed to work yeah there was this uh, rule in new york called stop and frisk where you you think someone is suspicious you could just pull them to the side and frisk them and advice for both sides i mean police officers need to be trained better to a point where their biases aren't getting the best of them and if you're african american where this fraternity brother of mine the friend he quickly complied if you are being hostile and aggressive and you're pushing the cop back i mean these guys they they may do something violent first and then ask questions later and it's it's where you want to put yourself in the best position where just comply right now and then later on if you want to come at them with lawsuits and stuff you do that later on but you don't want to risk it man because there's a lot of these situations where the, the officers are armed and this individual is uh resisting and when you're resisting like that uh, these individuals will do something and you could lose your life you don't want to put yourself in that situation where i i mean training definitely needs to be improved but i mean as you're saying yourself in this case where you're seeing both sides where in this case both sides are highly uh, complex those are one did you ever get go ahead no guy it seems like you wanted to add on to that point i was going to transition go ahead oh i was going to say that i've seen some videos on twitter which are very shocking like there was this black guy Mm-hmm. who was like lying down on the ground like he had his hands behind his back and there was these six seven police officers surrounding him and they shot him like like this guy was lying on the ground he was unarmed his hands were on his head and the guy's literally lying on the ground and these guys shot him and i'm like what what a scumbag <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> it happened in minnesota too where this guy was pulling out his driver's license to give it to the police officer and he shot him If this this happened a few years back um not I me mean, there's uh, there's bad apples that there are these bad situations especially with social media where you could see this the, Wait, the there's a, go ahead i mean the brown person's philosophy is whatever <laughs> brown people see police officers are like you know we'll just give them the id real quick there was one time i was at this hookah bar and this cop just comes to me out of nowhere 
And he just looks at me and he's like, did you pay for that? I'm like, what the hell? I was like, yeah, I paid for that. He's like, how can I be sure you paid for that? And I'm like, well, I literally just bought it. The hookah's name is called Armani Triple X, by the way. <laughs> I had this hookah flavor named after me. Uh, so I was like, it's, it's my name. Uh, what other evidence do you need? And he's like, uh, ID, please. And I was so irritated, but I was just like, all right, man, whatever. Um, like growing up, like my parents were like, you never talk back to the cops. You just comply with them. So I give him my ID and he's like, walk with me. He takes me to the front uh, where I meet the owner. The owner is a good friend of mine. And the owner's like, oh, no, no, that's Armani. Uh, he paid for this. You're all good. And this cop didn't even say sorry. He just says, okay. He gives me my ID back and leaves. I mean, that was disrespect. He's over here just accusing me for something that I didn't even do. Uh, but I didn't make a big deal out of it. I just gave him my driver's license. And it's just in our subconscious, man, where even the, the rudest brown guys, Whenever there's a cop around, they're like, ah, oh, no, man, we don't really mess with them like that. Just give them the information so they can go away. You guys don't bribe cops in the U.S., right? Nah, man. I mean, I don't even want to take that risk. There are a thing called rogue cops where they will take bribes, but I never took that risk. What's a standard bribe in the U.S.? What's a what? What's a standard bribe in the U.S.? And you got to come with some grand. You can't be like, here's five bucks. No, for example, let's say you break a traffic signal or something. Mm -hmm. What's a standard bribe? I, I'm, I don't know. You don't I, don't know? Even, <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I've never heard of someone trying to get themselves out of a bribe or a traffic stop. Because you might as well just pay the ticket. It's like 200 bucks. And I, I doubt a police officer is going to compromise their position to be bribed for 250 bucks so it's like why why would you bribe someone for something that it's less for you to just pay normally the bribing stuff happens harsh for higher up there let's say you're a drug lord and you don't want your drug supply station raided then you give some extra money to the cops there's a show called sons of anarchy where one of the cops for the area is under the payroll of the gang so that's typically uh, the bribery that i hear about not for traffic stops or for ordinary people like me i see but for, yeah. but i believe you asked that question i believe you asked that question because in india you can bribe your way out of a traffic stop correct in india it's standard practice like no one pays tickets like 99 percent of the time people just bribe and I mean, like, I mean that seriously, like 99% of the time, people will just bribe because say the fine is 500 rupees, okay? Mm -hmm. And the police person, you can just pay them 50 bucks. So, and you're done. Like, so it's like, it's, it's not a big deal at all. It isn't like a special thing. Like everyone does it in a way, you could say. So I'm not, I'm not admitting to anything. But... <laughs> Are you part of the 1%? <laughs> We're going. Yeah, I'm in the one percent, <laughs> but it's the, it's a standard practice here. Like every single person that drives has bribed for the police at some point in his life. All the things are changing nowadays. Like nowadays, people are more afraid of doing it, and that's a good thing. And nowadays, we have these electronic things where 
instead of you having to pay the police officer and the police officer stopping you like the camera will automatically like find you and it will be added to your license so the police officer and your interaction doesn't even happen so let's say you park illegally someone will like take a photo of your car and your fine will like, it will be like an online thing you'll be sent an sms on your phone and you're supposed to pay the fine there you don't have to interact with the police officer hmm. but you... yeah it, it isn't like a big deal in india to like to bribe police it's like it's something that every single person does at some How point how much money do you bribe them with let's say for a like standard 50 bucks 15 50 rupees so like 80 cents or something or like 100 rupees sometimes depending on the situation i had this one time where i was traveling okay mm-hmm. and this cop comes out of nowhere and he's like give me 100 rupees or i'm going to like give you some fine at random It's like he's essentially extorting trying to extort money from me and i'm like and i'm not an idiot right like i'm not like a random citizen here so i'm like why do you want money from me and he's like, he's telling me like i'm going to like give you a fine for something if you can give me money <laughs> and then i'm like i kind of like speak with him for a bit like as a random chat and he kind of like figured out that yeah it isn't safe to take this guy's money mm-hmm. so he's like what do you do sir and i'm like i'm a lawyer And the guy's exactly. like, okay, okay, go. Yeah. <laughs> and he just like went away. <laughs> do the police officers there? Do they carry guns? Are they physically no, no, intimidated? No, they, don't, they, don't, they don't. They don't carry guns. The citizens don't have guns, and the police officers don't have guns, and it's probably for the best. So how do they enforce the law? They they have a stick. They don't need to. People comply with them, like. you know people don't typically run away from police they don't fight back but hypothetically they do i mean how do they um, instill the discipline do they have a stick a taser or something usually they have a stick but not always like maybe 40% of the time they will have a stick it's called a lati but the stick isn't like meant to be used like it's just there for show harsh I'm not sure if you could perceive this but a lot of the American listeners right I know, now I know what you mean. I know I know I'm aware I don't think they can even perceive this So no yeah in Indian, Indian police doesn't have guns they don't have weapons usually and uh, yeah India is a super compliant state for the most part like people will not like run away from police because are, I tell you what, like, what's the point of running away from the police when you can just bribe them Hmm Are they big? Are are they big intimidating presences? No, they're just fat. They're fat? Yeah, they're fat. Have oh, a look, yeah. go on Google and search Indian police, you'll find it. India is very peaceful, right? We have very little crime, you know, despite what western media says. So the well, police don't need weapons. The police that I'm looking at are skinny. Look like at this is push them and no fall. <laughs> a lot of them are skinny as well it depends on where you are actually it depends on where the police is so a lot of city police is like fat but outside of cities they are thinner but i've only had this one weird experience with the, with the police where this guy is like okay i'm going to find you if you don't pay me like that doesn't happen like that that only happened to me once and i was crossing the jungle somewhere uh, hello Yeah, so that was weird, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so yeah, otherwise, no guns. Our experiences, no our experiences with police are 
night and day different. Would you say, do you guys have- police are night and day different, aren't they? Our police are night and day different. That's why our experiences are so different. Yep. So have you ever met someone who got shot? That ever got shot by police? Whatever, like. Yeah, I met a few people that got shot before. Really? Yeah. And I knew some individuals that were uh, gangbangers uh, from before. A lot of mm-hmm. gangsters went to my high school. And the first ever guy that taught me about business was this well-known drug dealer who taught me a lot about how he sold drugs. And he didn't uh, like pull me to the side and say, here, l- let me teach you, young man. Uh, basically, <laughs> myself, <laughs> myself and uh, a bunch of kids after class would play basketball. And this basketball was right by the hood, the ghetto. And one of these guys, uh, I believe his name was Omar. He was always doing this to people, right? And you'll see a lot of drug dealers do this. They'll have like weed in their palm and they're basically giving daps to give the other person the weed because there's a lot of undercover cops. And one day after getting done playing basketball, myself and Omar were talking and I asked him, I was asking, why do all the people come to you for drugs? I mean, there's so many drug dealers around the area, but everyone comes to you. And he gave me an insightful lesson that I didn't get at the time. He said, because I don't work for the money first. I work for the product first and the money follows. And mm. I thought he was being an idiot. I was like, you go into business to make money. I mean, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, listen, all these other bozos, they're working so much for the money that their drug quality product is awful. While me, I have the best quality product out there. So most of these people come to me and their money comes to me too. So he was teaching me that you focus on the product more and over time in the drug game, you will make the most money. And this is the same dude that ended up getting shot a couple of years later, <laughs> just to answer your question. It's a, it's a dark business, man. I mean, you can make a lot of money, but you make a lot of enemies too. So you're going to, it's a violent game. You told me earlier that you were for legalizing drugs. Mm-hmm. Have you thought it's changed? No, I mean, with marijuana, I... I see it doing no harm if it's legalized. Um, I mean, we did have a debate about legalizing crack and all that, which I'm against, but with marijuana, I don't see any harm in that. I believe it could create a lot of entrepreneurs. I believe it could help uh, the state. Now, granted, it's going to, uh, I can't necessarily say what it's going to do with like the youth and such, but I mean, right now people are going to get it one way or another you might as well realize it and florida was very close a couple of years ago i mean in terms of the votes it was just a few percentage points off from being legalized so it's the future it's most likely going to happen i see it's interesting to me really like the fact that everyone's already smoking it in so many places they're getting it anyway, but it's still illegal. And it's like, it's almost as if the people who are selling it currently want it to be illegal. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the truth. Because if it was legal, then these guys would lose business, right? All these cartels and drug lords, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like they're in business because these things are illegal. But if they were legal, the, the profit margins would decline. A lot of people would be selling it. Corporations would be in on it. Mm-hmm. And you know these guys would not be a monopoly and they would not make as much money. So I would not be surprised if the big factor behind keeping drugs illegal are these drug sellers themselves. To, to argue for the other side, I wonder if these individuals, let's say the Omar, maybe they're highly resourceful. They just don't have the ability right now because it's illegal. So if it becomes legal, now they're bossing up. They're getting their employees. They're getting a nice building. And they're showing how much they could do with little, where it's just themselves and uh, the dark market. But who knows what they can do with the professional market? See, let me give you an, 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 an analogy, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's take cigarettes. How many cigarette companies are out there? I have no clue. Yeah, but if you had to guess a number, would you say it's like in two digits, three digits, four digits, five digits? Probably two digits. Exactly. There's very few cigarette companies out there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, let's take a country where cigarettes are banned. Let's say there's there's an imaginary country. Cigarettes are banned. People still want to smoke. And there's multiple, there's thousands of people selling cigarettes illegally. Now, how many you could say essentially companies like illegal companies are out there selling cigarettes in a country as big as the United States, but cigarettes are actually illegal, probably way more than 10, right? Like maybe even in the tens of thousands because it's so spread out. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens. It's like when, if weed was to be legalized, there will essentially be a few companies which will, get all the market they'll have the best weed best weed they'll compete with each other and all these random ass sellers selling like small pouches of weed they'll just be out of the market like the the profit margins would decline so the price of weed will go down and it would not be profitable for these guys to actually be making money selling these small amounts of weed and their customers would go and buy from these big companies because not only is it cheaper but also more likely to be cleaner or whatever you know as advertised yeah Mm -hmm. so if weed is legalized the biggest losers will be these random sellers the cartels because the cartel business isn't just selling weed their main business is getting these illegal substances inside the country Mm. like there Mm -hmm. are few if if something is not taxed something can be bought in freely we wouldn't need a cartel you're right about that there's to add on to that, uh, the point you just made about this these individuals selling pouches, you're spot on with that. Where when I was done playing basketball, I noticed that Omar would every now and then personally give the weed to individuals. But later on in the game, he became a supplier. So he would have all the marijuana and then he would hire these individual pouch sellers in different blocks. And he says, that's leverage. So now he was bossing up. So if you're trying to compete with a guy like Omar and you're, let's just say, 
they were selling in your car or something, you're going to lose because Omar is supplying. He has the labor and he has the locations plus the clientele. So he is wiping out these individuals. So I didn't quite understand it at the time, but this guy was a, a smart businessman. Uh, he wasn't just a regular drug dealer. Um, how did we initially start talking about this? Oh yeah, you were asking me if I, I know someone who got shot. You are you are correct about that though. Where if weed does get legalized, then yes, a, a lot of the guys that are selling it illegally right now will take a hit. I don't know if all of them will get wiped out because with the marijuana industry, there are certain individuals that like that that personal touch, right? Uh, they don't want that corporate touch. It's like food. Some people like they won't go to Taco Bell, no matter how much you say it's good. They're gonna go to their local uh, taco shop. So, uh, for the general picture, you are correct though. Um, uh, the illegal guys would take an L if weed becomes legalized, and anyone can participate. You know, speaking of weed, I came across this video of these guys, like these these police officers raiding a house okay so it's like a cold country where there's lots of snow but there's snow in every house except this one house so these police officers figured okay these guys must be growing weed because they have so much heat that there's no snow on this house and when they went in the house they broke in it turns out they weren't like growing weed but they were illegally mining bitcoin (laughs) (laughs) so i found that to be really interesting yeah Interesting. So let me ask you. Illegally mining Bitcoin. Like, why is it illegal in the first place? I will not understand, but okay. Why is it illegal? Do you know the answer? The countries that ban it don't want anyone to have it. So they don't want the guys to get any Bitcoin from mining. So they make the act of mining itself illegal. Okay. It's like a way to like prevent people from getting Bitcoin. Is it like that in India right now? No. But in India, like it, most people would not mine Bitcoin because electricity here is really expensive. It would mm. make no sense. Plus, India is a hot country. So you have to not only like, buy electricity at sky-high prices, but then also pay for cooling. Mm-hmm. I will say countries like Russia, Canada are like well-suited for Bitcoin mining because they are so cold that you don't have to pay for cooling. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's I didn't know about significantly that. cut costs. Mm-hmm. So there's this hardware element involved as well that you, you need to factor in. Yeah, that's that's the biggest cost, right? The actual mining hardware. But the electricity is also a big factor because that's what decides whether you're profitable in the moment or not. Like if you're spending more on electricity to generate Bitcoin, which are not worth the price of electricity, then you're losing money. Then you might as well just shut off the operation. Mm -hmm. And one way to cut down on electricity spend is essentially not have to cool the the gig. The rig, if you can keep it cold without spending electricity, your costs will come way down. And that's why countries like Canada or Russia are really, really well situated to be like the leading Bitcoin miners because they're so cold. In terms of mining, do you see these big players forming where everyone's just pulling their resources? Well, there, there's only a few winners while everyone else is it's not even worth it to mine. 
we are already here. Like this already. happened like five, six years ago, you could say. Hmm. Interesting. So there's something called ASIC, like which is called Application Specific Integrated Circuit, which does SHA-1 hashes really, really fast. And it's like your computer can, I'm gonna like just throw random numbers here. Let's say your computer calculates 500 hashes per second, okay? A graphics card might say work 100x as fast, so it might calculate 50,000 hashes per second. But an ASIC would be something like, you know, 50 million hashes a second. So your computer is like essentially can't compete. Mm-hmm. So we are in a situation where mining in Bitcoin is essentially controlled by a very few number of players, like Bitmain, etc., who are so big and they have they're 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 the guys who are manufacturing these ASICs, by the way. That's it's it's impossible for other players to compete. Like there's like a couple of guys who are like the mining community, you could say. And it's just like a few people. It isn't like a large number of people. Bitcoin mining is really centralized. What? Would you say this is a good thing for Bitcoin that it's slowly becoming more centralized? I would not say this is Bitcoin becoming centralized. These guys are just miners. The thing is that miners don't make the rules. They just mine Bitcoin. The nodes set the rules. So the nodes are decentralized and that's what matters. It doesn't matter if mining is more centralized, but... I mean, there are, this is like, I'm giving you a very low nuance answer. There are more nuances here where miners can censor transactions now. They can front run transactions in Ethereum. They can be like, okay, so these UTXOs can't be spent or things of that sort. They can like do private deals. And so, yeah, there are, there are bad sides to mining being centralized. However, most of the bad sides are actually coming from the fact that Bitcoin is an open ledger. And I, I think Monero is a good solution for this where the ledger is opaque. So you, you don't actually get any advantage by having a centralized miner. Like if you even get centralized mining, it doesn't really matter because the chain is private. So you can't, like, when I say private, I mean like it's opaque. So you don't really have any extra information to hurt or benefit someone or yourself. Okay. Just back to that last question. Imagine hypothetically, just the dark world, the miners, they're becoming highly political and they choose one side. Do they have power to sway any transactions a certain way for political ideologies that they don't agree with? So they can't sway transaction. Like they can't be like, I'm going to spend someone else's money. That can't happen. And they can't be like, okay, so I'm not going to allow you to spend X, Y, Z money and do you know things like that. But they can't like, actually, wait, let me rephrase that. They can't spend your money and they can't like change the rules and everyone. However, if there is a centralized group of miners, they can do things like essentially prevent you from transacting. Like if you can make a transaction, but they can like decide to not include your transaction ever. Like no matter what happens, I'm gonna ignore Armand's transaction. I'm not gonna put it in a block. I'm not gonna mine your transaction. So that is a that's an issue with Bitcoin, essentially, because Bitcoin is an open ledger. Like you can see what UTXO is being spent and what UTXO it's being sent to. So if I know that these are Arman's UTXOs, 
I can decide to not let you spend your ETXs. For example, let's say that you are some kind of advocacy group and you publish your Bitcoin address publicly. So you have these UTXOs and publicly it's known that this is where, you know, these are amount addresses. And then when you try to spend it, these guys can be like, we're not going to mine your transaction. So your Bitcoin are essentially stuck. And this problem is not, like, you could say it's from the centralized mining, but I would say the root cause of the problem is the fact that these guys can tell what UTXO is being spent. So this lack of privacy thing is why this is happening. In a cryptocurrency like Monero, they can't really tell what, you know, which output is being spent and who it's being sent to and how much money is being sent. So they can't really do these types of nonsense. Now with Monero, Monero, is there still that issue with electricity and cooling and all of that, or is it completely different to Monero coin? It is completely different because Bitcoin has the way it's mined is called SHA-1, which is a very simple hash, which can be automated, not automated, I mean, which can be put in an ASIC, like an application specific integrated circuit. Mm -hmm. which can perform computations like millions and millions of times or even billions of times faster than regular computers that you and I have. With Monero, the mining algorithm is called Kryptonite. And I think they changed it right now to become something called SpiderX. Mm -hmm. And this, these algorithms are specifically designed to not be able to be put into an ASIC. So you can't monopolize it. Like anyone can mine it. Like you can mine Monero from your computer. And there is no monopoly here because th there is no ASIC possible. And if an ASIC becomes possible, they just change the mining algorithm. It's a part of the ethos of this cryptocurrency where they don't want it to be centralized mining. So if, say, in the future, they find a way to make an ASIC for SpiderX, which was really, really hard, by the way, the ASIC can be rendered useless and your billions or millions of investment that you made in figuring out how to make an ASIC for this will go to zero because in an instant, these guys will like switch to a different algorithm or come up with something new. Mm -hmm. You know what for I mean? Monero. So, for Monero, yes. So Monero, Monero is much more decentralized than Bitcoin is in terms of mining. Would you say that makes Monero more of the priced currency over Bitcoin in the future? Yes. Is a prediction? Technologically speaking, Monero is superior to Bitcoin. Technologically speaking. However, Bitcoin is well known and it has other advantages, you know, like simplicity itself is an advantage. What's more simple, so, Bitcoin or Monero? Bitcoin is much, much more simple because it's like a plain ledger, right? They don't employ any privacy technologies. It's like UTXO being spent, the amount being spent, and the person that is being sent to mm -hmm. can all be seen on the blockchain. So it's essentially no privacy, but it has other advantages. Like right? you can actually know there are 21 million Bitcoin by counting them out. Like how okay. much money was sent to who, and you can like know how much money do people actually own. And you can know as a guarantee that this is the amount of crypto this is the amount of Bitcoin that is actually that ex actually exists without having any doubts or without trusting anyone. But with something like Monero, 
where you don't know how much money is being transacted and you just have guarantees based on the encryption algorithms like the algorithm will verify that the amount being spent from an utxo is less than sorry is greater than or equal to the amount actually being received by the other utxo like the amount i'm spending and the amount the other person is getting are matching but we don't know what the amount is like you can't like just look at the ledger and tell that okay so 500 was sent from x to y Mm-hmm. what you can like know for sure is that some amount of monero was taken from x and the same amount of monero was sent to y including the transaction fee etc so you essentially are trusting the encryption and the technology to verify this for sure but say there was a bug let's say that there was something wrong with the encryption technology being used and you could say be like send four monero but the other guy gets five monero Mm-hmm. but because the amounts are invisible like how does anyone else know so you have to trust the talk, the technology that's being used by monero in this case called ring ct ring confidential transactions that the amount being sent by one person and the amount being received tally up but you have no simple way of actually just counting out the the money anyone has which you can do with bitcoin so gotcha. there are things like this so Monero has more technology it adds more privacy but the fact that it's private takes a lot of things away from it as well which bitcoin has because of its simplicity like you can trust there are so many so many bitcoin because you can actually count them with monero you can actually you can only inspect the algorithms being used but you can't really tell you know if there if there was no if you can't be sure there are no bugs okay So there's pros and cons on both sides. You're sold on Monero uh, because I'm sold it, on both. I have you're both. sold on both. Uh, but but now because Monero isn't something that I mean, consider me an outsider to the Bitcoin community. I mean, I don't stay updated with all of this stuff. So in terms of the general public, Monero is something that some people may have heard of, but it's not as big yet. Uh, would you say it's becoming bigger or do you think its complexity is going to keep it niche down? I would say that the markets are too unsophisticated right now to actually make sense in the sense that you know the markets where the way crypto markets are today mm-hmm. is essentially monkey see monkey do where people have heard of bitcoin <laughs> so they buy bitcoin people have heard of ethereum so they buy ethereum and there is no consideration of what these coins are actually doing like people don't know what ethereum is but they still buy it For likewise people don't know what dogecoin is but because it's like a funny thing people will buy it so it's like monkey see monkey do and dumb money there's a lot of dumb money in bitcoin right now and most people don't know anything about crypto much less things like monero so right now it's just like valuations or market caps are how well known your currency is that's it like it's not about technology it's like is this well known or not wow Well, you know a lot about this art so i mean i'm assuming that not only do you play around with this like this is something that you love for you to be this well informed in it i mean there has to be some love there right i built the number one free cryptocurrency course on the internet it's on teachyourselfcrypto.com and yeah man i think this stuff is going to change the world okay so i mean this it doesn't feel like work learning about this it really doesn't it's a lot of fun and this is the future like this is 
this is like learning how to code in the year 1995 like it's so early and this is the future like anyone who was doing this in 1995 like could tell like this is the future but people outside it were like this is a fad it's going to go away so we are at that point i really enjoy it harsh when someone finds something that is congruent to them they can articulate it in an easy way where i, I was helping this uh, one individual with uh, negotiating recently where he wanted to get a raise and he was asking for a lot of money and i don't want to hurt his spirits or anything but in my mind i'm thinking okay dude you're not going to get that much money in, in this economy especially cuz you're working for such a small company anyways i mean he did get a raise but it wasn't to his satisfaction and that's when he began to start questioning his life he just turned 32 and he's thinking okay do i stay in this company or do i actually pursue my passion and this guy has always loved real estate like when he talks about real estate he gets so excited and he'll articulate some of the most complex topics in some of the easiest ways and as we're talking you could tell that he wants to invest this part of his life 32 on forward more into real estate so him not getting the raise that he wanted surprisingly gave him more direction into what he did want so uh, the the reason i bring that up is because as you're talking about bitcoin i sense the same enthusiasm that this guy got with real estate interesting do you have any thoughts on cryptocurrencies like what are your thoughts well i mean I I seeing it as a currency I mean it's something that uh I mean I don't know much about it man <laughs> I, I don't even have a response for that I see I'll put it like this if I had to explain it in a simple sentence like what is bitcoin Mhm See if you the way we have money right now right it's like printed notes Mhm If you create a system of money that's not printed notes like that's like actual gold or something that has value how would you do it the way you would do it is by coming up with something that can be exchanged from person to person but can't be double spent and i'll give you what i mean i'll give you i'll tell you what i mean by this okay let's say that i email you a picture mm-hmm. you have that picture and i have that picture i can email this picture to someone else as well So that's why images and email can't make money because they, they can't be money because the because of the fact that I don't lose the picture by sending it to someone else like I still retain the picture and I can send that picture to you know five people mm-hmm. so that's the issue with creating a digital form of money the way this issue is generally solved is by involving a third party like some middleman in right. most cases these are banks so you have money in the bank the bank other person has an account with the bank as well if you want to pay someone else the bank will take from your account and add it to their account did you follow me here yeah but you, you your boy doesn't trust the banks no that's not my point my point is no, that there, just... there there is a central authority okay now ever since the internet was a thing people have been trying to find a way to digitalize currency let's say that you want to transact in gold so there was a company called egold 
and what they would do is they would like have gold in their cellars mm-hmm. and give you like slips like you know like they would allow you to transact with people as like a bank like okay so i have gold in my cellar you can have an account with me and other people can also have an account with me and then you can pay people in gold using me as like the party like as a bank right. now what happens is that governments are crazy right governments don't like any kind of competition so mm-hmm. they would legislate these big companies out or these companies would essentially scam customers and run away with the money etc so the problem with having currencies is that there is a centralized person who decides what transactions are happening and that centralized person gets targeted mm-hmm. like in case of your central bank or in the us it's called the federal reserve Yeah. that's essentially like a trusted third party and the third party is printing money on everyone else so it's like we're trusting you to hold our money but you're printing so much money that the value of the money we have is going down because you are abusing your power you could say mm-hmm. so how can we come up with a system of money that is controlled by no one and is entirely digital we can't use images because like i said like if i send you an image i still have the copy of my image i can send it to other people i can double spend this money and we will not know which image is the actual money anymore mm-hmm. so bitcoin is essentially a way to send something digitally where if i send it to someone i lose the bitcoin and they get it and there is no central party controlling it it's decentralized did you understand yes i did understand repeat what you understood well man this is going to take a while but the main thing is that there's a ledger where you can be transparent and what the man i i can't explain it but i know what you're talking about okay i'll put it in like even simpler terms okay yeah this is a way to digitally send someone something but mm-hmm. when you send it to them you lose it and they get it instead of both of you having it and this is not like and the way this is done is not through a centralized third party like you don't have to trust anyone like this is a decentralized system mm-hmm. so there is no one else involved here like it's it's a decentralized system and you can take something from yourself and give it to someone else yes. and that's valuable right mhm like the it fact that you can transfer it decentralized in itself is valuable yeah i mean it brings back more power to the people because i mean you brought up the whole federal reserve I mean to this day uh, a lot of individuals still don't know what they do so we don't know we can't put a face to a organization I mean they could just print money willy-nilly I mean it was bound to happen this way bringing more power to the people but as you're sure, I mean th- has something like this ever happened before the whole concept of bitcoin like in a different format or is this is this the first time something like this is happening Oh man, I'll be back in a minute. I just need to use the washroom. Okay. Well, while Harsh is talking about that, I um or when he's coming back, there was this uh, question that I was discussing with someone with where he was preparing for a fitness competition and he was talking about uh, there's beauty to articulating your goals out loud and sharing it with other people. And my philosophy has always been it's better to not announce too many goals with people and this is a fundamental a difference in belief that we have 
And I thought it was a very interesting uh, discussion to have because a couple of years ago, I actually uh, wrote an email where I asked my audience the question, should you tell your goals to other people or not? And by the way, here's a quick little plug. Uh, sign up for the Armani Talks uh, free daily newsletter to learn more about public speaking, social skills, emotional intelligence, and much more. ArmaniTalks.com slash newsletter. So I'm emailing and I, I, I ask my audience, what do you guys think? I mean, are you guys for the philosophy uh, to share your goals with others or not? And I kid you not, uh, the responses were split right down the middle. Half said, of course, you have to tell other people about your goals because how else will you be held accountable? And whenever you're thinking about not doing your goals, uh, those individuals will hold you accountable. Then the other half of the audience is like, mm, no, I'm one of those guys that likes to work behind the scenes. And once my goal is complete, then I will announce it to other people or it'll be announced itself. That's how big of uh, an accomplishment I made. And their philosophy was, I don't need other people holding me accountable. I can hold myself accountable. And I've always been of the philosophy that you should keep a lot of your goals to yourself because goals change. I mean, the more information, and by the way, Harsh, let me know when you're back. I'm back. Okay. Um, well, let me just finish this thought and then I'll bring you in because goals change. And what you wanted a year ago when you're over here announcing it to people, you may not want today. So my philosophy has uh, been keep your goals to yourself. And then if other people find out along the way, they find out. So Harsh, um, basically what I was bringing up was- um, I, I, I was listening. Uh, do I you would think- say, Yeah, go ahead. I've heard two sides of this and I agree with both sides. One side I heard from Naval, if you're familiar with him, Naval Ravikant. Mm -hmm. And his side was something like, you should tell everyone your goals because then you can't back out. Because if you back out, it'll be really, really embarrassing and people will think you're a liar. So now you have to do it. So mm -hmm. there's one side. And the other side is from Chanakya. And Chanakya says that you should not tell people your goals before you actually accomplish them. Because if you do, then a lot of people will actually try to hinder you out of jealousy or whatever, you know. So I can see and I understand both sides. What I would say you? that it depends on the goal. Like it depends on the goal and the person you're telling it to. But in general, I am on the side of like not telling people your goals. For the simple reason that when you achieve it, it's just so much more impressive. Mm -hmm. Like it's so much like it's like it's like no one can tell how you did it. And you've mm -hmm. done it already. No one can stick, you know, what do you say? Get in the way. And you don't have to tell anyone how you did it or how long it took. So you can essentially be like, yeah, I just did it with like a thing. Like, yeah, who cares? Like, took one day. Mm -hmm. I made the best seller in an afternoon. <laughs> so like, it's much funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now I'm off that same philosophy. My other thing is that you know, goals evolve. So what you said a couple of weeks ago doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be the same. But it really comes down to the accountability part. At certain times, like let's say you're 
trying to lose weight and routinely you are not losing weight, then you may need an uh, uh, accountability from an external party. So this is a good time to announce the goal. But other times, I mean, if you're someone who wants it bad enough, you can hold yourself accountable and articulating your goals with other people, hearing their feedback, seeing the pros and cons, it can lead to a lot of overthinking. My philosophy has always been like, begin. And blatantly, a lot of times my goals are private for the reason where it's not necessarily about surprising them. Like, oh my God, like I can't believe you did this. It's just, uh, I believe having some secrets to yourself fills that emotional investment in that goal. Like it depends mind. on the goal, you know, like if you, if your goal was to lose weight and you just don't tell anyone that it was a goal to lose weight and you're losing weight, that's way more fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And if it, if you have like some serious goal, then yeah, I think you should take a different thing and like you should figure out like who you're going to tell it to and who you're not going to tell it to. For example, if it was my goal to be like the world's best podcaster and I know Joe Rogan in person, I should probably discuss it with Joe Rogan because I could get some really good advice from him. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to like be a hindrance to me. You know, he might actually help me out. Versus if your goal is to say quit drinking and all of your friends drink, probably best to just avoid those friends and not like discuss your goal with them because they're trying to con- they're going to try and convince you out of this goal. Yeah. They're going to be like, drinking and, is not that bad, man. Come on, you're overthinking. Yeah, and even if you are, like, for your last example, if you're trying to become the best podcaster on the planet and you tell Joe Rogan, hey, I'm, I mean, what he's going to hear is, hey, I'm coming for your job. <laughs> so you're probably going to have to phrase it a different way um, because that's a grand goal, you know, and that's a, a goal with emotional investment. Like, I'm trying to become the best podcaster on the planet. I don't think that's a smart goal to tell other people. I think that's one of those goals where it's like, when you're talking to other people, you should have a phrasing that you could tell the general public, yes, I'm trying to become a better podcaster. But internally, the narrative is, I'm trying to become the best. But you saying, I'm trying to become the best and articulating that to others, it's just, they're not going to get it a lot of the times. They're going to be like, well, who's this guy thinking he's going to be the best? Or or they're going to try to talk you out of it. Like, oh, you heard of Joe Rogan. You heard of X, Y, and Z. So the grand goals, I believe you should keep to yourself. You shouldn't tell other people about it. I disagree with that. I think the grand goals are what you should tell other people. And the specific things you're doing that can actually be sabotaged is something you should keep to yourself. No, I disagree with that. Like, let's say, hypothetically, you want to become the world's richest man. And you're telling people left and right, hey, I'm trying to become the world's richest man. You think that's a good idea? Sure, why not? I don't think that's a good idea. See, I'll give you a better example, okay? And uh, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because to reach these grand goals, it's not something that just happens like right here in an isolated incident. It's a series of iterations that leads to that big goal. So you just telling that final act to someone, they're not necessarily going to perceive the iterations that led you to that moment. So no, I you don't want you them should... to perceive the iterations. See, I'll, I'll tell you. I want them to example. perceive anything. Especially the grand part. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I, I see where you're coming from. But say, for example, there's a guy and he's like a, he's a software engineer, okay? And he's working at a software company. And he's like, his goal is to like be the best software engineer. Let's say that his goal is 
to be the CEO of this company. But right now he's like a junior developer. So if he says to people, okay, my goal is to get so good that I'm like, I'm, I'll be the CEO of this company. That isn't going to bother people as much. It's not going to like, people aren't going to stop him in his career and people aren't going to try to hurt him because he said something like that. So there are advantages of saying that and it'll hold him accountable. If he's slacking off, then people are going to say, hey, I thought you wanted to be the CEO of the company. Come on, man, don't slack off, like work. <laughs> but say the steps to becoming a CEO from, from a junior developer could be something like sucking up to your project manager. So if you're saying like my goal right now is to suck up to the project manager, now that's a dumb move. Like you don't talk about the steps. The steps are for you so that people don't sabotage you. But if you're going to talk to people, you can tell them like the, the vision of the thing. In fact, in many situations, it's in fact the requirement to tell people the vision. Like if you're running a company, mm-hmm. your employees and everyone needs, need, they need to know the vision of the company. What are you trying to actually build? But you don't need to tell them the specific steps. Like I'm going to do this next year, then this next year, then this next year. You know what I mean? I see what you're saying. So I would say that is how I think about this, you know, issue. No, I see where you're coming from, where in terms of the vision, yes, uh, there's going to be a vision that you need to articulate to other people. But what I'm also saying is that you need, like, you also need something for you, right? Where you don't have to tell other people too much. And I believe it comes down to the accountability part where as someone, uh, let's say they're trying to become the CEO, like you mentioned, they're hypothetically slacking off a lot. Then this is a person that needs that accountability. So they need to tell other people, but other individuals are so self-motivated where telling other people is a hindrance. It adds more noise and their signal is there all the time. They don't need to add more noise like, hey, like getting feedback from other individuals because they're holding themselves to that standard. And I I do see where you're coming from though. And I mean, when you took a break, I said that I asked my newsletter about this. Do you share your goals or do you keep it private? And it was split right down the middle uh, of the people that responded back. Half said, I keep it to myself. The other half said, I keep it, I make it public. So. I mean, there is a side, uh, there's a case for both sides, but I don't agree with it. Definitely. I would say a lot of things come down to tact. Like if your goal is to say, let's say you're working for a software company and your goal is to like learn here for six months and then start your own company, you should probably, probably not tell it to anyone because then Mm -hmm. you'll be fired or something or you won't get responsibility. So a lot of it comes down to tactfulness and like, knowing the situation, which goal you're telling everyone. Let's say that you are like a big corporation and you have like three competitors. You can't go to the public and say, we're going to kill all the competition and raise prices on everyone. Like, even if that's a plan, mm-hmm. like, you can't like go and tell people like, we're going to kill these other companies and then we're going to be the only ones left and then we'll raise prices. Yeah. <laughs> That might be the plan. Like, <laughs> that, that might be the plan, but you can't like go and tell it to people. <laughs> so there point. is tactfulness involved. Yeah. Interesting. 
So have you ever had a bad experience with this? Like when you told someone your goals and then they made it impossible for you to fulfill it? No, I mean, there's been a couple of times where, let's say I go to a mastermind. You know what that is, mastermind? Yeah. So I go to a mastermind in Tampa and I was like, I want you to tell me your goals for this year. And there's some stuff where we're like, there's some stuff where, you know, you could say it, but I'm talking about the grand vision that, keeps you awake at night uh, that makes you excited in the morning i'm over here trying to tell this to other people so there's a girl next to me that's like um she's like I'm, i plan to become a billionaire which is fine i i, I believe that's the grand vision like you could keep to yourself as soon as she's saying it like all these other like individuals in the mastermind are like you know like rolling their eyes and it's one of those things where i could understand the chick that wanted to be a billionaire she has so much enthusiasm she really loved what she did. I could tell she went through her iterations to reach this goal. And I'm like, these other people aren't going to understand it. They're over here yawning away because we're in the mastermind early in the morning uh, while you're you know, excited early in the morning. Like you guys are different breeds. Now you articulating your grand vision to this person who has no allegiance to you or anything like that. They don't work in your company. It's just noise. So to answer your question, like, have I had an experience where articulating goals uh, has led to a bad experience on my end? Not necessarily on my end, because I don't believe in sharing big goals with other people, unless they're my immediate circle. Even then, uh, I'd like to have at least one secret with myself. But I've seen other people, uh, they're getting burned by this. And others just do it for ego's sake. There's a lot of individuals that they just want to write something on their Instagram bio. They start a company, they're like CEO or like uh, executive of this. And it's like a lot of it becomes ego. And I think it's way better to keep it to yourself, charge yourself up, hold yourself accountable, uh, self accountable, uh, build that confidence with yourself and let your work you know, speak. Um, so yeah, have, have you ever been burned? Uh, by something like that? Not really, but it's really interesting that you bring up this specific thing of people putting CEO and everything in their profile on social media and everywhere else. Which isn't a bad and, thing, but it's like some will just do it just so you know others know. They don't necessarily view themselves as the CEO only. They just want like, hey, do, do you see I'm the CEO right now? And it's more for ego's sake rather than heart's sake. I'll tell you something I learned from experience, okay? Mm -hmm. When you say that you're the CEO of something, and let's say you're dealing with some vendor or a customer or something, people tend to assume that you must be a really small, insignificant company or a startup, and you guys don't know what you're doing because they're directly speaking to the CEO and they, they haven't even like made any investment or anything with you guys yet. So instead, what you need to do is you need to like change your role. Like you need to introduce yourself differently depending on who you're talking to. So if you're talking to say a supplier, instead of saying I'm the CEO, you should say something like, yeah, I'm the purchase manager for this district. Ooh. And then that? they take you way more seriously because they assume you're a big <laughs> ass company. Yeah. Or if you are like in sales, uh, if you're selling something, you should say I'm the sales manager or something. So, it makes people think that you are a much bigger company and not just like one guy who's a CEO. 
So this is something I learned from experience. Like if you want better treatment, you have to like sometimes pretend to be bigger without actually lying. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're the CEO, you're both the sales manager, the purchase manager, everything. Mm-hmm. So depending on the situation, you might want to introduce yourself differently. Good tip. Yeah, I remember once, like this is when I was like 18 years old and like, you know, very early into my career, you could say. And I was like speaking, there, there, there's these softwares which like help you with investing and in researching companies. And one of these, something called the Bloomberg Terminal, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I'm like speaking with these guys and I'm like, okay, so I'm the investment head. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So firstly, I, I was just investing for myself, but I wanted to learn more about these companies. So I'm like, I'm the investment head. And can you tell me more? I give them like a, a random email I just made up and they gave me, they spent a couple of hours showing me the software and everything. And it was insanely expensive. Of course, it was like way more expensive than I could afford at that point. It was like $25,000 a year. So I politely declined. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they spent like three, four hours and I said it to me, <laughs> like 18 years old. <laughs> oh, you're 18 <laughs> was because of the fact that I introduced myself to be like as an investor, like, you know, as an investment head and not like, you know, CEO. If I was CEO, they wouldn't even talk to me probably. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I actually never thought about it like that, um, but I could definitely see it like that. The way that I initially meant it was, you know, someone will start a business more for glory's sake rather than, uh, what value can I provide? What can I, how can I then collect cash? They just start off writing CEO or like some sort of specialist, et cetera. And you know, it's a, once again, this is one of those nuanced things where at times you can see the case for that, where the person's not lying. They're like, well, that's what I am. But other times, I mean, it's more so for recognition. And it's a game of intent where the recognition isn't bad by any means. It's just that uh, it, I believe it really just does come back to our initial talk about do you announce goals in public or not? I mean, it's not one of those black and white answers where it's like, no, never announce your goals. I, I mean, if someone is, let's say, struggling with alcohol uh, and they've tried doing it by themselves and they can't do it, now having some accountability buddies helps. Uh, while and one side of the world, they're keeping their grand goal to themselves. Another side of the world, they're making it, uh, they're making the alcoholism uh, public so they can quit. So it's one of those games of knowing which goal you're working with. I'm just of the philosophy that having one big, grand, gargantuan goal to yourself does wonders for your confidence. People are at times looking at you and they're thinking, whoa, man, this guy's enthusiastic. And what is enthusiasm, really? Have you ever thought about that, enthusiasm? My definition no, of, tell me more. Typically, enthusiasm is built when you know something that someone else doesn't. So let's say me and you, Harsh, we wake, we're in this dark room, uh, and there's this monster chasing us, right? So you start running, I start running. But here's the thing. I heard, uh, I have a little walkie-talkie in my ear that says, hey, by the way, uh, the monster is, um, 
it's not going to hurt you. Right? This is all for a TV show. So at this moment, I mean, I'm going to be running with some enthusiasm because I know something that you don't. Um, mm. you, you see what I'm saying? So I believe having that one grand goal to yourself or you don't tell anyone will build that enthusiasm. Interesting. So let me go through the tweets. Yeah, I would say a lot of enthusiasm has to do with hormones. Hmm. Go ahead, expand. Because a lot of it is about energy. Like if mm -hmm. your hormones are fucked up, you won't feel energetic and you won't have enthusiasm. But if your hormones are good and you actually like what you do, you know, like it's a topic of interest, you'll have so much energy naturally that it would be impossible to not be excited and enthusiastic. And you can try this for yourself. Like take someone who isn't like physically fit and then get them to do TRT or something. Like see their, their levels and their emotions change. Like a lot of things like enthusiasm, energy, a lot of it is about your hormones. Interesting. Do you consider yourself an enthusiastic person? Yes. Do you, do you wake up in the morning excited nowadays i wake up in the afternoon excited i gotta start waking <laughs> up in the morning <laughs> no no more 5 a.m challenge <laughs> no right now i have to get back to the 5 a.m challenge i've been moving and everything and i've been working really late so i've been sleeping at maybe three and then waking up at 11 or 12 whatever and yeah so it's becoming like an afternoon wake up session for me now i need to change that I'm actually What's... building a SaaS company, so. Oh, nice. Yeah. Can you get details on that, or is it private? It has a lot to do with copyright enforcement. So if you are selling digital products, we ensure that your products won't get pirated. So if you're selling an ebook, like Level Up Mentality, people can go on Google and search for Level Up Mentality PDF and download it for and download it for free. And what we do is that we get all of these illegal links removed from Google. We get the you know the bad PDFs, the illegal PDFs removed from Scribd, Reddit, all these websites, and essentially make it impossible or really really difficult for people to download your products illegally. Let me know if you're interested in that. By the way, for sure. How do you manage your time to run all these businesses? I wake up, I do stuff, I go to sleep. I wake up, I do stuff, I go to sleep. <laughs> you never feel overwhelmed? Not really, man. Like if I do, I just take a break. It's not a big deal. Like sometimes I'm like working so much that I'll just like go out with my friends and not really work that much that day. And it just depends on the day, I would say. Like I'm not robotic. But you know what you do is not normal, right? Where a, a person running even one business, I mean, that is saying something. You run this, uh, you run the SaaS company, Life Math Money, teach yourself crypto. I may be missing another 10 more businesses you run. Uh, so there's no there's no certain time management trick that you follow. It, it's it, You go with the flow. I just go with the flow. You're not someone that ever feels stressed or s sad, do you? 
I don't feel sad, but stressed. I feel that quite a bit of times. It's something. When's the last time you feel sad, though? When's the last time you felt sad? Like deeply sad, like when my grandma died many years ago, and oh. you know when my grandfather died back in January. Mm-hmm. That's when I felt really, really sad. Mm-hmm. Mm, then I can say, when was it, when was it, when did I feel sad after that? Uh, uh, uh. Mm. Yeah, one time my mother was like very sick. So I was, I wasn't like that. Wasn't a great time for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's my, she's all good now. Okay. But outside of that, I can't think of any time I was sad. Like, man, recently, harsh. I forgot to tell you a story. Um, you know how you got the COVID. Uh, a couple of weeks back yeah man and, and you were talking about how it just threw you off your rhythm it was hard to work with pain and then we were talking about how grateful it is when you're feeling good and you take it for yeah. granted when you are feeling good bro i would say last week it was raining right but not that bad rain it was just drizzling and i was about to go for an hour-long walk uh, today was the day like i wasn't going to go to the gym so i was like let me just go for this walk real quick I'm going for this walk. Ten minutes in, dude, I slip and I fall in one of the most embarrassing ways you can imagine. I'm like, ah, and I fall on, this <laughs> gra- <laughs> on gravel. I scrape my palm. I scrape my knees. Dude, I'm in pain. And I'm like, man, what do I do? Do I go back or do I finish this walk? I chose the latter option. I finished the walk. And then I came back. And I'm in pain, dude. Uh, this this uh, slip is stinging at this point. And I'm taking um, some time to be grateful for when I'm normally feeling good. I'm like, man, I really miss when I feel good, where I'm not falling and uh, hurting myself. And it takes moments of pain to truly appreciate when you feel good. Now I'm feeling good. I'm feeling energized. But a little bit of pain or a lot of pain can hurt productivity so much. Man, it really kills your ability to do get things done. Like, like when I had fever, like you know, now that you know, intellectually, I would be like, if I have fever, I'm gonna like, you know, I just feel bad, but I'll keep working. Mm-hmm. But that's not how things happen. Like when I had fever, I just couldn't focus on anything. I was just sitting on my bed resting, and it was so uncomfortable that I just I was just trying to pass this time as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. I was playing video games just the past time. <laughs> video games. I did, in fact, end up reading three books, though. Like, in like in a week, mm-hmm. I read three books. I read the Foundation series. Science fiction. But to drive the point home, I still couldn't read a non-fiction book. I had to read fiction. Mm-hmm. Because non-fiction takes effort. It takes effort for me to read when I'm in pain. I mean, that that day or that week when I fell, I was just over here watching. Well, I was still productive because I'm capable of working through the pain. And I also have a backlog of material. Let's say I'm in dire pain and I can't even stand up. I have material in my arsenal to release for another couple of weeks to a couple of years. Like, I'll be good for that long. I'm sandbagging us a couple of years. The, the guy that gave me that idea is Chris Brown. You ever heard of Chris Brown before? No. And you never heard of Chris Brown? 
um he's um have you heard of michael jackson yes okay um, he has some good music yeah um some say that you know chris brown is our generation's michael jackson others will say a statement like that is blasphemous but he's a very prolific singer rapper writer actor he's multi-talented and he said in my phone right now i have fifteen thousand songs Damn. and others are like what like he'll say this in a radio interview so i thought that was such a brilliant idea because he never creates from a place of scarcity because he knows that he has 15,000 hits in his phone at all times. So now, it, but he doesn't use it. He's like, I'll only use this in an emergency. But now he could create in such a beautiful way because he's creating from a place of abundance. So uh, I thought that was a great idea. I'm like, let me bring this into the Armani Talks brand just in case, you know, tragedy could hit. Uh, you could get sick someone close to you can pass away you can be sad whatever so you should have a backlog of material for those rainy days i agree with you but i've personally never followed that philosophy like there are no backlog with lmm like all the articles that are published were written like right before they were published yeah your uh, your content creation schedule is um very there is no schedule precise. i just write when i feel like writing yeah it's very precise i mean it, uh, you don't throw out uh, or you don't do a lot but you do a few and interesting so i'm going to i just don't time. have that much time to produce too much content you know like my, i have so You've many a lot of things. businesses man Got a lot of businesses yeah i wish they were much bigger than they are <laughs> <laughs> but my point is that I can't sit and write for the sake of writing in the sense, like, you know how some people say one email every day? Like, mm. I can't do that. Like, I, I'll go crazy. I you need have time fun with like... it. You got to have fun with it. I mean, it's not like, oh, you, they have to write it. It's like they get to write. Like, for me, uh, like, I, I run a daily email newsletter, and it's it, it's exciting to me. It's like when someone's playing video games, I'm like, the fuck? Uh it's like you could write, you could tell a story. Like, that's fun. Fun is the cheat code, man. I mean, if you can have fun doing it, it's not work. I get you, but the fact that there's like a schedule on it and you have to write kind of turns it into a job, in my opinion. In fact, I was like reached out to buy a lot of these writing companies lately, like Substack, wherever. And they wanted to pay me to like, you know, join Substack. And they're like, okay, we're going to get you. We're gonna pay you. We're gonna get you, you know, like a subscription to these imaging sites like Shutterstock, whatever. And we're gonna get you an editor if you decide to come on, you know, Substack. And the only reason I decided not to do that mm -hmm. was the fact that if I start charging, you know, monthly for writing, then it creates this commitment that I have to write that month. Mm -hmm. I got to write something. Otherwise, what am I charging you 10, 5, 10, 20 bucks for? Yes. And that kind of like kills the deal for me. Like I need, I write when I feel like writing and when I have something to say, I'm not going to create something just because today I, I said, I'm going to write a daily newsletter or a weekly newsletter. And I'm going to have to write something now. Like that kills the process and it like, kills the drive. It makes it less fun and less useful. And mm -hmm. I have done that in the past though. I've done, I've written articles just to like stick to a schedule. And those articles are not as good as my natural articles. Let me give you a quote, Harsh. 
when someone else disciplines you, you get resentment. When you discipline yourself, you get empowerment. There's a drug to me when I say I'm going to do it at this day. And when I do it, because I set that deadline, that's a part of the creation process. So I, I would say that's where we're, we're different on where for me, like setting that deadline and saying I'm going to do it then it generates ideas that I never knew was possible. And that's a, that's a video game to me. That's something that is enjoyable. I, I do get your perspective too, where I would say your perspective is more common than my perspective, where it's like, oh, man, nah, nah, I got to do it when I feel like it. But for me, I mean, that whole element of turning art and mixing it with athleticism, the discipline side, it's a drug to me, man. It's my Grand Theft Auto. Speaking of, Makes uh, which, which video game did you play? I was playing GTA 5. GTA 5? Do you ever see yourself getting back into video games? Not particularly, man. I didn't like the game as much. Like I, It was way more fun when I used to play GTA as a kid. Mm -hmm. I was playing it as an adult and it wasn't as good. Like it was, first it was too easy. But if it was hard, I would complain about it being too hard and punishing. So I don't think I will get into video games again. However, we never know, you know, I might be 70 playing video games like a dork. Well, some hardcore gamers, they say that gaming is similar to reading a book. Did you ever find that analogy or do you think that's asinine? It depends on what book. Like if you are reading something like Harry Potter, then yes, gaming is similar to reading a book. It's essentially an equivalent waste of time. However, it, it again, it, there is more nuance. Like if you are reading to improve your English, like you are not going to improve your English by playing video games, but, but reading will actually help with that. So there are like, there's more nuance, but generally like for say a native speaker of English, you aren't really gaining anything by reading Harry Potter. The same way you aren't really gaining anything by reading, like, you know, playing a video game. So they're both entertainment, but reading nonfiction and playing video games are completely different things. Hmm. I mean, I will say video games are superior to TV. At least they're more interactive. I don't know about that, man. I would say TV is better for you than video games. Because with TV, I mean, it's just a medium. But within it, you could watch interviews, documentaries. No, I mean, like, you know, watching, I don't mean interviews, documentaries. When I say TV, I mean, like, sitcoms and things like or that. Sitcoms and stuff. Like, entertainment. Like, mm -hmm. I would say it's better Probably. to play video games than to, you know, watch TV. Because video games are at least more fun. And you don't get all the nonsense, like, LGBT and whatever else in like video games generally. Hmm. You ever see them making video games One educational? One second, I'm putting up some water and it's okay. gonna end up in the microphone. Cool. Tell me. Do you ever see them making video games educational? In what way? I mean, isn't there a way? I mean, where let's say you have to solve some puzzles that mentally teach you something uh maybe the whole storyline is teaching about history like that hardcore history a podcast that you that would to. be really good that would be that's a good idea actually you should do that 
They should do that. There's this author uh, called Dan Brown. Have you ever heard of him? He wrote Angels and Demons, Da Vinci I've Code. I've read Angels and Demons, yes. Good book. A lot of his books, you'll learn a lot of stuff. I mean, he gets a lot of controversy. Uh, but if you read his books, you'll like learn about cathedrals and certain popes and certain parts of history. And it's, it's written in a thriller format. So, yes, it's a novel, but you're learning a lot about history along the way. Um, the, go ahead. At Disney World, I mean, there's a thing called Epcot where you could go there and you could learn a lot about educational stuff. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't done that more with video games. But it's a fun game, too. It's not, it's not boring or anything. It has to be fun. It depends on the game. I will say there are some games which do involve some amount of these things. However, this is not the primary purpose of video games, you know. Mm-hmm. And regarding learning from angels and demons and books like these, you just can't be sure whether what you're learning is true or not. For example, the entire premise for Angels and Demons was something like that. You have, like, I don't remember exactly, of course. I read it like 15 years ago or something. Mm-hmm. So it was like, there's like a small amount of antimatter and it's going to wipe out the city. Yes. The thing is that that's, that's bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Like a small amount of antimatter is not going to wipe out a city. It's going to be like a firecracker. So like, just because something was in the book doesn't mean you it's right. So you right. have to be careful with what you're learning from this infotainment type stuff. Like not exactly infotainment. Like you mean you mean like you know learning something from an entertainment source, where it might not actually be accurate at all, and you might be left with like really bad information. There's this new show on Netflix called History 101, and these are short 20-minute episodes that are very entertaining, harsh, and it talks about space wars, the rise of fast food, uh, feminism, your favorite topic. and It's not uh, my favorite topic. No, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, uh, what do you call it? Um, so th- this show, History 101, it's, uh, it's educational and it's easy to digest. So I, I wonder if more content like this will be out in the future, edutainment style. Isn't this more like a YouTube channel than if it's just 20 minutes long? Yeah, I mean, nowadays Netflix has been experimenting with short-form content. It's 20 20 to 25 minutes long. Interesting. Maybe Netflix CEO's uh, harder assessment in one of the past unapologetic episodes. (laughs) (laughs) we got to listen to these two. (laughs) Maybe we should send it to them. We're going to charge them for the consulting to actually fix their company. (laughs) Arman, I need to get going. I have to have some dinner. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, Fun episode. Uh, Any final words? None, man. Like, comment, and and subscribe. And I will see you guys soon, yeah? And Arman will see you guys soon as well. Take care, guys. Thank you guys very much for joining the Unapologetic Cruise podcast. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.